so we'll continue, so we'll continue our study in the book of Job. Now tonight is um, in the book of Job in the weeks will be, um, of course, uh, Christmas Eve. Next Wednesday, we'll have our Christmas Eve services. And by the way, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Jerry's in the back. He'll slip you a Bible so you can follow along with us. We're going to try to cover five chapters tonight. So I said that last week and we covered two. So <laughs> five tonight, all right? But anyway, we'll see how far the Lord gets us tonight. But next Wednesday is Christmas Eve, of course, and we have our Christmas Eve family services that'll be at noon and three o'clock in the afternoon. So noon, three o'clock, and uh, invite somebody to Christmas Eve service. And uh, we're just going to have special music like what we did tonight just worshiping the Lord and celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus. And then we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, which I've been looking at kind of uh, the last time. It's been actually several years since I've taught out Luke chapter 2 on Christmas Eve. So we're going to go back and look at that story and really bring it alive on that uh, first Christmas night uh, where Jesus was born. And uh, it's going to be a wonderful time. So bring somebody out. Uh, It's a great time to bring somebody to church for them to hear um, the wonderful, magnificent story of Jesus being born in the gospel message. Then on New Year's Eve, we'll be back here at 7 o'clock, all right, two weeks from tonight as we close the year, and we're going to do a prophecy update, and we're going to be looking at the signs that indicate that we're in the last days and uh, really be encouraged to continue to be the wise and faithful servant that's looking for our master's return. And, uh, and so uh, prophecy update. And we're looking forward to that. The kids will be doing Dare to Share on that night. Uh, The high schoolers uh, will be in with us, and they'll be uh, joining us for that prophecy update. And then again, the middle schoolers and the kids will be finishing up December to remember. So we'll finish the year, and then we'll move into 2015. Now, Sunday morning, this Sunday morning, we'll be uh, continuing in John's Gospel. And we'll be in Chapter 16, looking at that Upper Room Discourse and uh, 8.30 and 10.30. And then um, some other things that are taking place. Uh, Parents, uh, there is uh, Luke and Ashley giving some announcements for the youth uh, and the middle schoolers uh, on Sunday the 21st, this Sunday, 1 to 3, is going to just be meeting after the second service, Christmas fun and games, pizza will be provided. And then the high schoolers uh, on Sunday, 6 to 8 o'clock, meet at Highland Park Lane's Bowling Alley. That's on 59th Avenue on the west side of town, $10 per person, and the kids are going to go bowling. So uh, there are a couple flyers out there um, that are on that information desk and are letting the kids know, and I think they have flyers up there. So. Uh, parents, couple youth activities that are going on uh, this Sunday. Middle schoolers, one to three, and then high schoolers, six to eight, bowling. And then young adults movie night here at six o'clock Sunday, and uh, they'll meet here at the church for a movie night. So Travis will be running that. So uh, nice to just kind of get together and fellowship and, and slow down a little bit and some things taking place on the 21st. So make sure you look at everything. Uh, cough, uh, the bookstore will be open afterwards. And uh, there's some great things that you can get uh, as you do your Christmas shopping and make sure that you stop at the Cornerstone of Calvary uh, Bookstore. So with that said, I believe I covered everything. Um, There are some green flyers, some extra ones out at the information desk. Pass those out. Pin them up at work if you're able to do that and you're allowed to do that. Um, You know, give them to your neighbors, whoever. I'd like to see those go, all right? And uh, invite somebody out to Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve 
services. Also on this Sunday, just real quick, ladies conference that will be happening January 24th. So take a look at that and we'll tell you more about that on Sunday. But Father, we do come tonight. We desire to just study your word. And Lord, as we go through these chapters of Job, Lord, we want to glean from them and, and uh, we want to gain and um, we want to uh, make application for our own lives. So touch our hearts, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this time of the year. That perhaps that there are those that are here or, or listening on live stream that they find themselves at this Christmas season going through difficulty or affliction or heartache. And Lord, we know that our comfort and our hope is in you. Our strength and wisdom comes from you. And Lord, I pray that as we see that Job is struggling here and he's sharing his emotions, as he is sharing um, with um, this conversation, as he, he makes these discourses, and he also makes statements of faith, that Lord, that we would know that we can turn to you and we can, Lord, cry out to you and that you hear us and you see us. And your word declares that as we pray to you, that you will hear our prayers as, as we call upon you. Lord, that as we search for you, that you will be found. And Lord, I pray that all of us would be encouraged tonight. And even if we're going through a good season, Lord, right now in our lives, that we would be able to encourage others that perhaps are downcast and troubled in their hearts. So Lord, I thank you that we have a living hope, as Peter would write in his epistle, that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Knowing that, Lord, our sins are forgiven, we have right relationship with you, and that we do have the hope of heaven. And Lord, that you're going to come for us. And just as Jesus came the first time born as the suffering Savior, that he will come again as the reigning Savior to rule and reign over this world. And then righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea, as Isaiah says. So Lord, may we be encouraged tonight through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we enter into chapter 22 of Job, this begins the third round of exchange between Job and his, his companions that have joined him in the ash heap. And of course, this conversation, two rounds, as, as Eliphaz would speak, and then Job responds, and then Bildad speaks, and Job responds, and then Zophar would speak. And, and we know that, uh, again, that Job would respond. And we know that during these two rounds of exchange between these three individuals with Job, that they have been implying that, Job, you have sinned. Job, you sinned greatly. You, you've done wickedly. You need to confess your sin. And that um, that's why you're going through the sufferings and the loss and the difficulties that you're going through. And, of course, we need to remember a couple things. Number one, as we continue here tonight, that um, in chapters 1 and 2, it was the Lord that gave his assessment of Job, and that is that Job is blameless, he's upright, and that also that uh, he shuns evil. And, and we know that God gives that positive light of Job. He's, he's got godly integrity. He was the greatest man of the East, and the reason that he's the greatest man of the East isn't because he had such power or prominence or he was wealthy, it's because he was a godly man. 
So that's God's assessment of Job and these three companions, and I'm real hesitant to call them friends because they don't really know Job, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But here they're making these uh, implications and application and accusations that, Job, you have sinned. And we know that um, you have done wickedly, so you need to confess it, and your kids have sinned. And that really has hurt Job. It's cut him deep in hearing those words. And he's called them miserable counselors. They haven't been of help to him. They haven't brought any comfort to him. They, they haven't been of any uh, uplifting benefit to him at all. And so it's been worse for Job to hear his friends say these things, his companions say these things to him. And so we saw that uh, last week, as we ended with Job gives this discourse on the wicked, and what he said as these guys have been saying, that the wicked get judged by God. And Job says, well, you know, in this life, the wicked don't always get judged. Sometimes they benefit, and it seems like they, they benefit. So this conversation going on, and now we're going to see now this third reign of exchange as Eliphaz after he hears this discourse that Job gave that we ended with last week in chapter 21 on the wicked, now Eliphaz is going to accuse Job of wickedness. Let's pick it up in chapter 22. As Eliphaz answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? And though he who is wise may be profitable to himself, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? So here Eliphaz asks, what good are you to God? Can a man be profitable? Implying that, Job, you think that you, you think too highly of yourself. Why do you think that you're so special? Now, one of the things that we need to remember that, uh, that we don't want to have the mindset of, Lord, I am so special. You're so blessed to have me as your child because I'm so intelligent. I'm so, you know, together. I have prestige. I have wealth. I have prominence. I'm popular, whatever it might be. You see, he shows favoritism to no man. But we are special in the sight of the Lord. And that's what I want you and I to remember. Because I think for most of us, that we can have the mindset of, Lord, you must be so disappointed in me. And we can have that, that, that thought of even David. David would say, oh, what is man that you're mindful of him? Lord, that you would even think about me. Lord, do you really care about me? And I want you to remember that God's word declares that you're the crowning jewel of his creation. It's amazing that I like wintertime when you look up at the sky because it seems like winter is so clear out and the stars are so bright, aren't they? There just seems that they're, they're brighter than they are in the summertime. And you can look out in that cold air and you see the heavens. And, and when you really begin to ponder it, or even in the summertime, when you look out and you get out in the countryside and you see the Milky Way galaxy and all the stars and everything like that, you think, wow, this is a big universe. And God, you created all of this in this world and this planet and all living organisms and, and how wonderful it is. And we live in a fallen creation, don't we? And what is man and all these, you know, over 5 billion people on this earth, who am I that you're mindful of me? But we're to be reminded, just as he would say to the children of Israel, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure. And indeed, you are a treasure to the Lord. When Jesus gave those kingdom parables in chapter 13 of Matthew, he would say that the kingdom of God is like a man who, who found a treasure in a field and, and gave all that he had to buy the field to take the treasure out. 
And you see in those kingdom parables, Jesus would say that the field represents the world. And as we know that Jesus, who would give up everything, he didn't give up deity, but the glory of deity and coming and becoming a man and, and becoming a servant, a slave, and being obedient, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and became a man and obedient to going to the cross, to death. And we know that Jesus, that he would say to that man that came to him, that I'll follow you. And he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus would go to the cross to redeem you and I, to redeem the world to himself. And he didn't redeem the world so he can have another planet. You look at the stars and billions upon billions of planets that are out there. He has billions of planets that he created. He redeemed the world to get the treasure. And the treasure is you. And never forget that. That you are a treasure to the Lord. In other words, you're very valuable to the Lord. So here is, is you know, Eliphaz saying, Job, you think you're really special. You're not special to God. You think too highly of yourself. And we continue as he gives this discourse uh, of accusing Job of wickedness in verse 4. It is because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. But the Almighty, or that is the mighty man, possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in it. Verse 9, you have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares all around you, and sudden fear troubles you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and abundance of water covers you. Eliphaz, he's lashing out here. Job, your wickedness is great. Your iniquity is without end. And that must have, as he said this to Job, really cut him deep. And that's why I believe that these guys didn't really know Job. They really weren't his friends. We know, again, from chapter 1 and 2, that Job was an upright man, godly integrity, blameless, feared God and shunned evil. And in chapters 29 and 30 and 31, we're going to see that Job's going to give his last plead to the Lord. He's going to, to want to be vindicated. And in chapter 29, he talks about his past. And in chapter 30, he'll talk about his present situation. And in chapter 31, he'll talk about his future. But when he talks about his past, we see that Job, he talks about how he was one, that he helped the fatherless, that he fed the hungry, he helped those who were in need, that he was respected by men as he sat there at the city gate. He had a place of prominence. He wasn't prideful. He wasn't one that, you know, as he put his confidence in himself, he wasn't one that worshipped idols. So he was one of godly integrity. And here he's being accused that you are wealthy because you strong-arm people. And you take their clothes. And you don't care about the hungry. You don't care about the widows. And we know that God in his word, that he declares that he has a special heart for those who are orphans, those who are fatherless, those who are poor, those who are needy, those who are downcast. That's a special place in his heart for the widows. And here Job is being accused, you don't care about them. You've taken their bread away. You didn't give the one who was thirsty drink. 
And Job, he has hung on to his integrity in hearing these words from these guys. It must have hurt him deeply. And these guys didn't know him very well in giving these false accusations concerning Job. And I just want to say this, we got to be careful when you don't know somebody well, that you and I, we begin to pass judgment on them. When we don't know somebody very well, and we live in a society and we live in a day where we like to do that. We like to have an opinion about everybody and everything. And that person that's passing that judgment and that opinion on somebody maybe has never even talked to them, never even gone to them, never even tried to get to know them and their heart. And we need to be careful and wise as Christians in that area, not to pass that judgment on somebody that you have never sat down and shared your heart with or tried to get to know their heart. And it ought not to be with us as Christians. But instead, just start hurling things that are hurtful and begin to be judgmental. And begin to cast them down and cut on them with words. So here Job is really feeling this. And in verse 12, Is not God in the height of heaven? And see the highest stars and how lofty they are. And you say, what does God know? And can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see. And he walks above the circle of heaven. Will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood? They said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. We read in verse 19, the righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laugh at them. Surely our adversaries are cut down, and the fire consumes their remnant. Hey, Job, God sees hey, all things. The clouds don't cover anything, so you're not getting away with anything. Now, we do know that God does see all things, doesn't he? He knows all things. And walking in the fear of the Lord, as Job would do, means that we are in constant awareness that, Lord, that you see all, that you know every thought that I'm thinking, you know everything in my heart, you know all my actions, you know every word that I'm saying. And that is part of walking in the fear of the Lord. Lord, that you are awesome and you are, it's just being always in awareness that, Lord, that you see me, you know what I'm doing. And we may be able to hide things from our family members or um, from our spouse. Um, we might be able to hide things from our friends, coworkers, whatever it might be, but we can never hide anything from God. And walking in the fear of the Lord means I am in total awareness, Lord, that you know everything that I'm up to. You see me. And walking in the fear of the Lord is, Lord, I want to do everything in a way that pleases you. So he's right. God does see all things. But verse 16, as he is misapplying this to Job, uh, it's interesting. Elphaz points to, you know, again, the flood. He says, look what happened. You must have done wickedly, Job, because what happened in the past? The floods came. See what happened to the wicked? Again, this is the oldest book of the Bible, so this very easily could have happened only 200, 300 years after the flood. So here he is given this, you know, discourse and, and accusing Job of wickedness. God sees all of it. And in verse 19, the righteous see it and are glad. We will be glad, won't we, when God does judge sin in the world. I can't wait till the Lord comes back. I can't wait till we come back with him and he establishes kingdom here on this earth. And then as Isaiah says, that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. 
And then he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll be with the Lord for all eternity. That's our glorious future. And that's why we can have joy even in the difficulties of this life and hardships that we go through because we do have hope. And as Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you will be also. No more sin, no more death, no more tears, no more sickness. And we're going to just be with the Lord forever. So I can't wait. The righteous see it and are glad. And we will be rejoicing with the Lord when that happens. But in verse 21, as Eliphaz continues, now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive please instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Uh, Ophir, doesn't that sound familiar to you? So here, this is written, you know, 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, actually. Um, again, at the time of the patriarchs, a little bit before Abraham came on the scene, perhaps. But 4,000 years ago, Ophir was known for having gold. Now, you go forward to 3,000 years ago when you um, go to uh, the time of Solomon. Remember Solomon when he built the temple and he overlaid it with gold and he had all this gold. And it says there in First Kings and in Second Chronicles that it was Solomon that would send ships to Ophir and they would bring back all this gold. So if anybody can figure out what, where Ophir is, there's a lot of gold there apparently, or there used to be if Solomon didn't get it all. But they don't know exactly where it is. Some believe experts, you know, or Bible scholars or uh, that study these things that perhaps it's in India, or some have suggested, in Africa somewhere. But it was known for a place where there's gold. And it, it's just interesting that he, he mentions this, and, and this is 4,000 years ago, but verse 25, Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will have your delight in the Lord and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him, he will hear you, and you will pay your vows. You will also declare a thing, and it will, establish, it will be established for you, so light will shine on your ways. When they cast you down, and you say, exaltation will come, and then he will save the humble person, and he will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. And so more counsel that, Job, you need to get right with God, and you will be blessed. Again, he's misapplying this to Job's situation. But notice in verse 21 again that he says, now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. We talk about peace this time of the year. And the message of the angel, the heavenly host in Luke chapter 2 is glory to God in the highest and peace, goodwill towards men. And we've talked about that peace that the Lord desires to give us. Peace only truly comes from the Lord, doesn't it? And always remember that. People of the world try to find peace. We speak of peace, but it only comes from the Lord, the Prince of Peace. And we have peace with God as we surrender our lives to Him and come in faith to Jesus Christ. We then have peace with God, and then He wants to give us the peace of God. And that's what I believe that every single one of us as believers, that we really want this Christmas season, and as we enter into the new year, isn't it, that we want peace. Lord, I want the peace of God that rules in my heart. 
And it comes by trusting in him. It comes by just resting in his love. It comes by standing in his promises. And we know that Jesus would say to those troubled disciples in that upper room, as we saw uh, that he said to them in chapter 14, that my peace will be with you. The peace of Jesus Christ as we look to him, as we magnify him, as we just continue to walk with him. That's what we want, the peace of God, as we go to him in thanksgiving, giving our supplications to him, and the peace of God will guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. Amen. The Lord desires to give you peace. And maybe somebody here tonight, maybe there's turmoil right now, there's confusion that is in your heart. The Lord desires, as you just look to him, and as you just continue to walk with him, that he wants to give you the peace of God that rules in your heart as you just cry out to him. So Eliphaz, he gives this discourse in chapter 22, and then in chapter 23, Job, he answers, and he proclaims God's righteous judgments. He answered in chapter 23, verse 2, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me, and there the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. So Job wants to take his case before God. And at the end of Eliphaz's address, Job is really in agony. And, and I think that perhaps he's feeling desperate. And the cry of Job is that he wants to meet with God face to face and plead his case before him. Again, Job is, is looking to be vindicated. He feels that he cannot find God. You ever felt that way? I think that a lot of us have. We know that as he is speaking here, and, and, and we can read in, in chapter 23, verse 8, look, I go forward, but he's not there. And backwards, I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. We can feel that way, don't we? He, he's seeking God, but he feels like, I can't find God. It's as though he feels like God is hiding from him. And there are times when we're really going through it that we feel like, Lord, where are you? Are you hiding from me? Lord, how can I find you? Lord, I just want to perceive your presence. And we feel like, Lord, I, I can't find you right now. And of course, we have talked about in Jeremiah chapter 29, that familiar verse that I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And we've discussed how it is the Lord that he is our future. He's our hope. He's our only hope. And Job, he's feeling hopeless at this time. But Jeremiah goes on to write in verse 12, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. You seek the Lord, and he's not hiding from you. And that's where we can have the peace of God that begins to rule in our heart. And when we feel like, Lord, where are you? Are you hiding from me? Do you see me? I, I, do you hear me? Yes, he does. And he promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end. I hang on to that promise. Lord, you're going to be with me even to the end. 
till I take my very last breath, you are with me, and then I'm going to be with you in heaven. And so we can stand on that promise, and we can cry out to the Lord, and as we search Him with all of our hearts, as we cry out to Him, He hears us, and we will perceive His presence and His comfort in a very real way. We will be found by Him because He desires to make Himself real to us in those times. The fellowship of His sufferings, as Paul would write about in the book of Philippians, which is a deep level of fellowship with the Lord as we go to him in our times of trouble and sorrow in our lives. So here he is, he, he's just, um, you know, proclaiming God's righteous judgments. I, 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 I feel like he's not there, but he goes on and he says in verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Here Job speaks of that, you know, once again, that amazing faith that he has. You know, it seems hopeless. Where are you, Lord? And Lord, I can't find you. It seems like you're hiding from me. But then he puts his confidence in God that will get him through this and that, Lord, you're working and I'm going to be refined as gold. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. That's an amazing statement of faith. Do you realize that's the work that God wants to do when we go through the fiery trials? And to know that the Lord is with us, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, those three men in the fiery furnace that were cast down, and Nebuchadnezzar had said, you know, turn up that oven seven times more than normal, and they cast the three guys that would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They were upright. They were ones of godly integrity. And because of that, they found themselves in the fire. You know, we discussed last week, and we're going to continue to discuss this week, that Jesus in that upper room is being honest to his disciples and saying, listen, you're going to go through persecution. You're going to go through difficulties because they hated me first. They're going to hate you, and a servant isn't above his master. I want you to know these things so you're not stumbled by it. And when we stumble over something is when we don't see it. We don't expect it there, and we trip over it. Oh, what was that there? So the Lord is giving them, you know, that warning, just giving them truth. Listen, there, there are going to be those that are going to come against you because you love me and walk with me and you believe in me. And that's the same with you and me as his disciples. And the Lord doesn't want us to be stumbled by that. And here we see all throughout the scriptures that the men and women of faith, that they would go through difficulties and be hated by men who have rejected God. And you and I will do the same thing. But know this, that through the trials, whatever those trials might be, by the hands of others or the circumstances that we face, that the Lord desires to refine us as gold. And he desires to purify us, to grow us, to help us as, as we go through the fiery trials. Know that he desires to work perseverance, endurance, and he desires for us to grow in that faith, to come to that completeness as James and Peter's would write to us about in being in fiery trials. And we can count it all as joy, knowing that he wants to grow our faith. He wants to make us better. He wants to purify our hearts. That's the work that God wants to do. And it's not fun, is it, guys? It's not fun in the fiery times. 
But no, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had that fellowship of his sufferings, that sweet fellowship in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar looking in, he's saying, how many guys did we throw in there? Three. Well, I see four, and the fourth looks like the Son of God. And, and their fellowship, in, and come out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. And I don't think they wanted to come out. Did they stay in there with Jesus because of that sweet fellowship they had? And when they came out, they didn't smell like smoke. They didn't have any hair that was cinched. The only thing that was burned up was the ropes that had them bound. And the things in life that will bound us up or do us in or, you know, unlike God, will burn up the impurities as that goldsmith heats up that gold and he, he will scrape off the dross, the impurities, and he'll keep doing that until the goldsmith can see his reflection in the gold. That's the will of our Lord, to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes it comes through the fiery trials that we go through to refine us as gold. I'm finding that to be true in my own life, and I know many of you as well. And the fiery trials aren't easy, and it wasn't easy for Job here. But he has this amazing faith that, Lord, you're going to see me through. You're going to see me through. You're going, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Amazing faith that he continues to display. But we finish chapter 23 as Job says, but he is unique and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me and many such things are with him. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me, because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. So here Job recognizes, and he acknowledges God's sovereignty once again, but he doesn't recognize God's goodness. He says God is unique, but Job is frightened that when he thinks about the sovereignty of God, that you know what? It's, it's not good. And he's kind of, he's terrified of the Lord right now. Again, he's sharing his emotions. This is what he's feeling. I think that perhaps some of you may be able to relate to this. Sometimes that I've talked to people that in the trials, the fiery trials that they go through or the loss or the difficulties, they become frightened what perhaps that God might allow next. Here's the thing. As a child of God, as we're walking in the will of God, we don't have to be afraid. And we don't have to be afraid of our Lord. And we can, again, rest in his love and his compassion and his long-suffering and mercy that he has for you and for me. The first message on the message given to those shepherds, the first declaration that Messiah has been born, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the very first thing that was said to those shepherds is, don't be afraid. You know, I've made reference of this, that, and I heard Greg Laurie on Grace FM mention that, I believe yesterday as I was coming in uh, to church and the early morning program that he does, that, you know, there's has been said that there's 365 references in the Bible of not being afraid. And, and and, and perhaps that's something that, you know, be nice to check on and see. But there's a lot of references, isn't there, of don't be afraid. And if it's true, 365 references of don't be afraid, that's one for every day of the year. 
And we don't have to be afraid. The people of, of Jesus' day when he was born, they were afraid. They were afraid of Rome. They were afraid of, of Caesar Augustus. They were afraid of the Roman army. They were afraid of uh, this, this man that was a paranoid man there in Jerusalem ruling over Judea, Herod the Great. They didn't know what kind of crazy thing that he would do. And the message of the coming of Messiah is don't be afraid. And that's a message for us on this Christmas. In that upper room discourse, again, don't be troubled in your heart. You're troubled. I know you're confused. You don't understand everything, but you believe in me. You don't have to be troubled because I prepare a place for you. You don't have to be troubled because you know the nature of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and you know the way that I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't have to be troubled because you have the privilege of prayer. You don't have to be troubled because the peace of Christ is in your heart. And the comforter is coming. The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the ministering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be with you, that is in you. You don't have to be troubled. Because as you abide in me, I'll bear fruit in your life. And my promises are true. And I am with you. So this Christmas, and as we enter into a new year, Every day, the promise is given to us that we don't have to be afraid. And Job continues in chapter 24. He begins to talk about the violence on the earth. And in chapter 24, since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. So Job begins by wondering, why does God not judge the wicked? And he speaks about the injustice he sees in the country, uh, the financial sins of the wicked. They're rooted in greed. Why doesn't God judge them right now? They didn't have fences back then, and so he, he's talking about, you know, when you had land, you would put landmarks, and it usually just piles of stone. Those who would come along and move those boundaries and claim the land for themselves, and not only claim the land for themselves, but the animals that grazed on that land. That's the way the condition was in Israel when you read First and Second Kings, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And even though it seemed like that at times that they were doing well economically, that we know the condition of the nation was, as you, you know, also compared to the prophets that came on the scene and were prophesying at that time, that, hey, there's violence in the land. There's violence in the land. They, they were saying there's greed. They would get up and they would think about how it is, can I rip off my neighbor? How can I, you know, get what I want? And even using violence for that. We see in our own society, we see in our own nation, we hear it every day, the violence that is there, and it's very troubling, isn't it? The shootings, the, the, the you know, abuses, and all those things, and, and the greed that can be, you know, out there in the world, people ripping people off, especially this time of the year. Isn't it amazing how there are those who, you know, just 
will take advantage of widows and the elderly and anybody they can coming up with all these scams and you have to be careful don't we identity theft and scams and things coming on you know phone calls and and emails and on our computers and phones you know you got to be careful hey you know what your bank account's been compromised give us your number and and we'll fix it for you and it seems so real and they're tricky and you and I have to be careful, don't we? And be careful. But there are those who live to just scam and to rip people off in a violence. And that's what he's talking about. He looks around and he's overwhelmed by this. He's complaining about this to the Lord. In verse 9 of chapter 24, some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. The wicked also oppress the weak. They take from the poor, causing them to be naked and hungry. They kidnap the young. And he continues, verse 13, there are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways, nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises uh, with the light. He kills the poor and needy. And in the night, he's like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me. And he disguises his face. And in the dark, they break into houses, which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. For the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. Those who rebel against the light. Again, remember in John's gospel that Jesus said that men love the darkness rather than the light. And they love their evil deeds and lest the light you know, expose those evil deeds. So Jesus talks about how he's the light of the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. And they rejected the light of the world just as many today reject the light of the world, Jesus Christ. In verse 18, they should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. As drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should uh, forget him. The, the worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. The wickedness should be broken like a tree. For he preys on the barren who do not bear and does no good for the widow. Job begins to, in a way, curse the wicked. And this is what should happen to them. Hey, God, this is what you should do. Now, we would never do that, would we? When we see something or... You know, we're upset about something. God, you should do this. You should drop a bus on their head or whatever. And we could have a tendency to do that. You know, David would pray, Lord, break out their teeth concerning his enemies. And again, just expressing how we can feel. But here's the thing that we need to remember. First of all, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And why does he say that? Because he says, don't you mess with it because you can't handle it. And know also that God doesn't need our help when it comes to judging others. Because he is the only one that can do it justly and righteously. He's the only one that can do it perfectly, righteously, and justly. And he doesn't need our help. And we need to trust him. 
And I know that the time's going to come right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, as Revelation chapter 19 tells us, that we'll all be in heaven together. And we're going to say in unison that righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Right on. True are your judgments, O Lord. So we can allow and just put it in his hands. He's the righteous judge, isn't he? In verse 22, but God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up and no man is sure of life. He gets them security and they rely on it. Yet his eyes are in their ways. They are exalted for a little while. They are, are gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Now, it, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? The wicked seem to be secure and successful, you know, um, may it vanish quickly. And what have I said that if it's not right, prove me wrong is what Job finishes the chapter here. And so now chapter 25, Bildad, the second one that speaks, uh, his response here is in chapter 25. Bildad says, verse 2, and this is the shortest in the book of Job. This is his final speech. In verse 2, dominion and fear belong to him and makes peace on his high places. Is there any number to his armies upon whom does his light not rise? And how then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in the sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? Build Dad's response. He focuses on chapters uh, in this chapter, verses 1 and 3, on, you know, um, the power of God. God sees all as his high places, verse 2. And we've already talked about that. But then he, in verses 4 through 6, talks about God's justice. And he talks about how man is born a sinner, verse 4. Man is just a maggot. And the implication is because you think you're righteous, Job. You're not. You're a worm. Now, remember, Job has been holding on to his integrity, hasn't he? We've discussed how we're not righteous before God in and of ourselves. What are, is man that you're mindful of him as David looked up at the heavens? And we are not just seen as worms, but again, that we're the crowning jewel of God's creation, that you were so important to God that he sent his only begotten son to come and die for you specifically, individually. We are not just seen as worms, but we're seen as a treasure. But isn't it interesting in verse 6, in a son of man who is a worm, that reminds me so much of Psalm 22. Now, most of you know Psalm 22, that it's a psalm of David, and it's a prophetic psalm. It speaks of Jesus' death on the cross, his suffering. The things that Jesus went through, what he saw, um, he, he talks about that um, in Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. That's what would happen when you were crucified. Here David's writing this a thousand years you know, before Jesus' crucifixion. They pierced my hands and my feet. My heart is like wax and have melted within me. My Strength is dried up like a posture. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me out of the dusk of death. 
for dogs have surrounded me and they pierce my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Isn't that amazing? A thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. But in Psalm 22, in verse 6, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for worm that's used there, that it is a worm, it means a scarlet worm. It was a worm that was crushed and was used by the Jews to dye the curtains of the tabernacle scarlet red. Jesus was crushed for you and for me. Shed his red blood that we might be righteous before him. Again, we can't be righteous in and of our own selves. It is being righteous as we are believers that he that knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So Job here, he answers a short discourse and Bildad in chapter 26, and we'll end at chapter 26 tonight. But Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? And how have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words and those spirits and whose spirits came from you. So here Job's response as he challenges his friends, have you helped me? Have you helped anybody else practically with your wisdom? According to Bildad and the other two, they accuse Job of lacking wisdom, but they haven't given any wisdom themselves. They haven't helped Job. What they've done is they've hurt Job. The way that we help people is we give them truth. And we give them truth even if we have to bring correction to them. Amen? But here's the thing. We give them truth because we care and we love them. And we show that love and we show that, that we care for them as we give people truth. If we don't give them truth, we're not really helping them. And there are times that we have to give people truth when it's hard for them to hear but may they hear our hearts that we care about you. We want you to repent or we want your fellowship to be restored with God. We want you to be right with God. And Job says here, from who are you really speaking? Is it from God? If it really came from God, then you would have helped. But Job's conclusion is that Bildad and you other guys, your words are not from God. They're your words. And that's why it didn't do any good. Give people the word of God, the counsel and the wisdom of God's word, and that's what's truly going to help them. In verse 5, as Job continues, the dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty spaces. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds. Yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters and the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his way, and how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Now, first of all, isn't it interesting, as Job speaks of the greatness of God, the awesome power of God, God sees everything. And then in verse 7, he says that he hangs the earth on nothing. 
And, and he goes on in verse 10, he drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters, the boundary of light and darkness. This again is 4,000 years ago. This is God hangs the earth on nothing, indicating that the earth is round, the circular you know, horizon and divides the, the light from the day. Amazing that he's making this statement because you know that for so many years until just actually recently in, in, in the 1500s and, and 1600, people thought that the world was flat. They thought the world was being held up, you know, all the, the myths that would go on, that the earth was held up by, you know, the Hindus have believed by a tortoise or the Greek, you know, believed for all those years that Atlas, you know, the picture of Atlas, and I'm not a very good Atlas, but... <laughs> You know, that he's holding up the world on his shoulders. And here, Job gives amazing truth. We know that Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27, the earth, he drew a circle on the face of the deep. That was 3,000 years ago. Verse 7, he stretches out the north over empty spaces. Here's something kind of fun to do with your family over Christmas. Kind of get out where it's dark, and when you look out at the sky, if you look towards the north, it's more empty then in other directions to the stars. Even if you can see the Milky Way galaxy, it begins to diminish as you go to the north. And Job is observing this. So it's kind of cool that he writes about this circular horizon that separates the darkness from the light and the given, you know, that the earth hangs on nothing um, in the heavens. He, the reason that I'm mentioning this is because, you see, the Bible doesn't need to catch up with science. Science needs to catch up with the Bible. And always remember that. I think that Christians get duped into that we have to assassinate our brains to believe what the Bible has to say. Oh, and the Bible's outdated, and the Bible's just stories, or whatever it might be. And the Bible's true. And when the Bible says that he created the heavens and the earth in six days, he created the heavens and the earth in six days. And the Bible declares to you and to me, you know, worldwide flood. There was a worldwide flood. And as you look at the evidence, you will see that it very much supports what the Bible has to say. And there are very wonderful books that we have in the bookstore that will help you kind of sort those things out. But there's a lot of Christians that are being duped in, well, we got to believe in, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, old earth. We got to believe in, in not a literal six-day creation. We got to believe in evolution. And it takes away from the very gospel message, doesn't it? Because we know that as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, that when Adam sinned came death. When Adam sinned in the garden, through Adam came sin and death. And if you believe in evolution, that there was processes of things dying and then evolving and stuff, what you're saying is God's word is not true, and you're saying that it was, wasn't sin that brought death to this world, but it, it is evolution that did. Adam, if you sin, if you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. What is death? He'd never seen it. And he ate that tree. And because of that, sin and death came into the world and affected all of us. But the good news this Christmas is the last Adam. 
through his one righteous act, has brought life to you and to me. And may we give that message to others. Born in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So don't be afraid. And glory to God in the highest, in peace, goodwill towards men. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, Lord, these chapters that we've gone through. And we can just be encouraged that you see us and you hear us. We know you do. And in the appointed time, as Paul would write in the book of Galatians, you sent your son to fulfill the promise that was given clear back in Genesis chapter 3, that through your seed, through the seed of a woman, would come Messiah. And Lord, we're thankful that he came, and that's why we celebrate Christmas, and may that be in our hearts, Lord just desiring to just have that peace that rules in our hearts and goodwill and joy to the world that only comes through you. Father, I am so thankful that we here have embraced the gospel and if there is anyone here that you've never embraced the gospel, <laughs> the greatest gift that you'll ever receive is the free gift of salvation. And it comes by believing in Jesus who died for you. He was crushed as a worm shedding his blood for you because you are a treasure to him. You are valuable to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I just want to pray if there's anybody listening on live stream or here somewhere that you've never done that. I want to give you opportunity right now to cry out to God and as you do sincerely with your heart he will be found and you will be forgiven as you realize that you are a sinner because of Adam's sin sin and death came to this world but because of the last Adam Jesus Christ his righteous act comes now life that is available to you everlasting life and it comes by recognizing that you are a sinner and that you open up your heart to Jesus and come to him and surrender your life to him. Believe in him. Have faith in who he is, the son of God, and what he did. He died on the cross for your sins and made atonement that he might have you the treasure. He rose again from the grave. He's alive. Open your heart to him as he's knocking on the door of your heart. And he promises that he will come in and sup with you and fellowship with you and you with him. If that means anything to anyone here tonight, will you pray, Jesus, I come to you tonight. I believe that you were born as the babe of Bethlehem and you came to this world as the Savior of the world. I believe you died on Calvary's cross for me, a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. And that you were put into a grave and you rose again and I know you're alive because you're speaking to my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I put my faith and trust in you and I surrender my life to you right now. And thank you for hearing my prayer. And tonight, if you prayed that prayer, if you're on live stream, call us this week. Let us know the decision you made. Or if you're here tonight, come up and pray with me tonight. I want to encourage you. And I pray that tonight, Lord, that everyone's been encouraged. 
especially when we become afraid and uncertain and have heaviness of heart. Lord, that we can be at peace because we have the peace of God that rules in our hearts. Bless everyone here as we go our way here tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I hope I can see you on Sunday morning, 8.30 or 10.30, as we continue through the Upper Room Discourse in John's Gospel. Why don't you stand? We're going to close in song here tonight. I want to stay here and pray with anybody that needs prayer tonight.